the New York Times article about Harvey Weinstein's alleged sexual harassment already out in the public, Ronan and the team at The New Yorker continued to work on their stories of alleged sexual assaults by Weinstein. One additional source, from marketing consultant Lucia Evans, joined Farrow and Company's story after the Times story was published. Evans told Farrow how she found Weinstein frightening, calling his mere presence intimidating. She likewise described how Weinstein assaulted her, saying he, quote, overpowered her. I just sort of gave up, Evans told Farrow. That's the most horrible part of it, and that's why he's been able to do this for so long to so many women. People give up, and then they feel like it's their fault. Along with Evans and the other sources' stories, Ronan and the team were getting ready to publish fact-checking their information, getting the side of the accused by asking for a comment or response, which is the standard journalistic operating procedure. Farrow wrote about this about Weinstein in their conversations, some of which were off the record. And I'm quoting this because it's interesting to know what was going on in Weinstein's mind when it came to dealing with the accusations and as he was commenting or trying to get his side of the story um, for the journalistic purpose of it all. So Ronan wrote uh, this about him, and I quote, Weinstein suggested repeatedly that an interaction wasn't rape if the woman in question came back to him later. This was at odds with the reality of sexual assault as it so often transpires within inescapable workplace or family relationships. That it was at odds with the law seemed to escape him. And I end quote. Oh boy. Weinstein seemed to sincerely believe that the interactions had been consensual and were then being recast years later in the name of opportunism. Nonetheless, though, Ronan, Farrow, and the team, they carried on. And on October 10, 2017, just a few days after the New York Times actually published their article, the story in The New Yorker came out. When it did, Ronan would hear from various people ranging from fellow journalists to strangers saying that they too had a story. They were telling Ronan, me too. And with the stories about Weinstein now out, a door has opened. There are more like Harvey, whose misconduct needs to be revealed. It is also worth noting that the women in the story were reacting to the story. So that included, you know, the likes of Rose McGowan, Lucia Evans, the others that I've mentioned in the episode so far. Some were pained, others ecstatic, as Ronan put it. All described a feeling a weight lifted. Pharaoh dedicates several chapters in the book, revealing the tactics employed by Black Cube, how they under Weinstein's instructions and financial control, conspired to keep the women quiet, 
and make sure the truths never got out. Harvey had the means to do so, and it's nothing short of disgusting for one to realize what money and power can do. And it wasn't just Black Cube operating systematically to keep women, such as those who were Pharaoh's source. It turns out something else was at play. I mean, the book is called Catch and Kill. And at last, actually, Pharaoh gets to the part about the practice of catch and kill. So Pharaoh describes how American Media Inc. or AMI practiced catch and kill to purchase the silence of women who have stories of allegations of sexual misconduct of powerful men, including former reality TV host Donald Trump. The relationship between AMI and Trump was an extreme example of the media's potential to slip from independent oversight to cocktail party alliances with reporting subjects, Farrell writes in the book. But for AMI, it was also familiar territory. Over the years, the company had reached deals to shelve reporting around Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Tiger Woods, Mark Wahlberg, and too many others to count. This was catch and kill. Purchasing a story in order to bury it. And it turned out to be more common than one thinks. <laughs> 